You know, there's an old, there's an old hymn. It says, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and his purity. May his spirit divine all of my being refine. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. You know, as you think of the words, we could go on, beautiful words. The song's probably close to 100 years old, but the words talk about, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me, all of his wonderful passion and purity. What do you think about when you hear those words? I usually focus on the word purity, I'm not preaching on purity this morning. We don't talk a lot about passion. You ever evaluate the passion of our Lord? It took a lot of passion for him to die for us. Psalms 34 and verse number 8 says, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. It's good to be here today. I've enjoyed the service, enjoyed the communion, enjoyed what Brother Michael had to say and the song selection. Wonderful day to be here. I'm glad I'm here. We love you, and it's good for my wife and I to be here and uh, I think of many memories. I will, before I get into the sermon, I will let you know that Brother Marlin just seems to be doing well. I've been asked a lot about Brother Marlin. And he seems to be doing well. As with open heart surgery, some, some difficulties, but I think he's going to work through those. Good to be here. Good to talk about passion this morning. Taste and see the Lord is good. Does the Lord taste good to you this morning? You ever thought about that? I love that verse. Growing up, I hated cottage cheese. Hated buttermilk. I think of the things I didn't like. And it was, I was going to have a hard time learning to like that. I think sometimes people look at the Lord and they may say, you know, it's just hard for me to like that, what you guys like. But you know, me liking cottage cheese doesn't matter. Me liking Dr. Pepper or preferring something else doesn't matter. But me tasting to see that God's put that in every one of us. If we'll come to him with passion. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture this morning. You'll probably need your uh, Bible. Um, I'm also going to read a few writings from some religious authors, some of the last 50 years, some going further back than that. Things that I've, I've enjoyed reading. Some may be going back a few hundred years, several hundred years, but I won't give you the names of each one. But there's a few of those in here. The surest way to disarm and anger or a lust is to turn your attention from the girl or turn your attention from the insult. Start examining the passion itself. It's the surest way of spoiling a pleasure. I read that not too long ago, and as I read it, I really, really had to think about that for a moment. I thought, that is so true. The other day we were, I believe it was the day Marlon had his surgery we pulled into there and um, trying to find a parking spot. There was not any parking places. As I was pulling in, one guy flew in front of me. And, you know, it's pretty crowded. And I had to hit my brakes hard. And it really kind of made me angry. So I went on. Then he swung in behind me. And I saw a parking space hit my brakes. And he laid on the horn. Now, I don't drive a lot in Dallas. I stay north. We don't do that. So that's just a no-no where I'm at. I mean, Ty comes and visits me and he tailgates people on the back roads. 
I've never, I don't know that I've ever had that conversation, but he's tailgating people on the back roads. And I'm, in my mind, I think I kept my mouth. I thought, we don't do that. <laughs> so I was angry. And the more I thought about it and dwelt on what he had done, I thought, how rude. So we went in. Marlon was about to have a surgery. And um, as I went in, I thought, if he comes in, I'm going to say something. Because I knew what he looked like. And there he came in. And I told my son was there. I said, well, there's the guy. And I hadn't told him how angry I was. And as I looked, I thought, no, I will not say anything. As you step back and I sat down and I began to look at myself, I thought, why am I angry? Now, as long as I focused on him, I had a lot of passion. As long as I focused on him doing that to me, my pride was hurt. I wanted him to understand, don't do that. What, what did you want me to do? You know, I could have questioned. He was wrong. But when I started examining myself and, and quit looking at him and how I looked, my wife told me one time, she said, do you know how you look when you're angry? And I said, no. And I thought, I do not want to see how I look when I'm angry. She, she was not happy. She said, it's not good. My uh, daughter's when they were in school, would say, Dad, you scare the guys. Because when they'd come around, they said, you look angry. I thought, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. But you know, there's some truth to that. As long as I focus on what I'm focused on, I'm, I've got a lot of passion. But when I start looking at myself and my passion and turn that camera on me, I'm not happy. And he's, the writer there that author was saying the surest way to cure a passion like that, a, a, a thought you shouldn't have, quit focusing on what you're thinking about, but focus on yourself and what you're doing. It'll quench that. There's some truth to that. I like that. During the um, communion, I think he was saying, Michael said it was perfect for what I want to talk about next. Michael said, um, I'm all in. I think he said he was all in because he has a home in heaven. You know, there's something that we focus on. There's something I'm going to focus on tomorrow. Teresa and I, I, I don't know, she may not be going with me, but or the next day, my son and I will go. We have a place in Oklahoma. It's a long drive. And, you know, I have a little bit of passion to get up there and get done what I need to get done. And there's a why. I've got to feed some cattle, and I have, I'm passionate about that. We're going to talk about today passion and how that works. And I hope when we're through that maybe it motivates you a little bit. But there's a why. There's a why as to why we're here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Let's see here. Ecclesiastes. Hope. We're going to talk a little bit about hope. What's the why? Somebody says, well, Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes chapter, let's look at verse number, chapter 2. You know, I relate so well to Solomon, and I, can, I love to go back and, and read some of the things that he says. Chapter 2, verse number 1. If you're there... I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth or merriness. 
Enjoy pleasure, this new King James, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, of madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. See, he's got a why. He told you. He's looking for something in life that'll bring happiness and joy. And how to lay, he said, I tried to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do, even under the heavens all the days of their lives. He said, I was searching for something with passion. I made my great works. Have you ever done that? You got goals this week? You're going to do great things? I built myself houses. You got a new house that you're building? You got a goal. And planted myself vineyards. You starting a business? I made water pools, verse 6, to water the growing trees of the grove. I, had, I acquired male and female servants, had servants in my house. Look at verse 8. I gathered silver and gold. He invested. It's just the same things that we do. And Solomon says, and I was passionate. He said, I did more than anybody before me. Verse 10, I love this verse. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Verse 11, I looked at all the works that, I, that my hands had done and on the labor which I had toiled. And what did he say? All was vanity, grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Solomon says, so if you're, no matter how old you are, sitting here this morning, you've got goals. And there's an object. You want that new house. You want that business. You're in your 20s. You're in your 30s. You're in your 40s. You're in your 50s. And you have these goals. And you're going after them with passion. Solomon says, be very careful because he's done it all. And at the end, it was pretty empty. You know, when I'm dead and gone, what I do tomorrow on, on the farm, not going to mean a whole lot. But I pursue it with passion. I pursue it with passion. Look on that chapter uh, 9. Let's move to chapter 9, verse number 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work nor device or knowledge and wisdom in the grave where you are going. I want to move on back to chapter where I really want to go, I think, is chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. To all the young men and young ladies who are pursuing life, he's fixing to give you some advice because you have this object of what you think is going to make you happy, and it will somewhat. But Solomon says, Rejoice, O young man, to all the young couples. Rejoice in your youth. You know, there's a line in a movie, It's a Wonderful Life, says youth is wasted on the wrong people. And I get that. He was trying to get that young man, if you remember the scene. He said, kiss the girl. If you remember that movie, kiss the girl. And he said, youth is wasted on the wrong people. If you remember the line, it was a great line in the movie. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the days of your heart. Pursue your dreams. And in the sight of your eyes. But he says, keep one thing in mind as you have these goals and you have this hope. 
For all these God will bring you into judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart, put away from your flesh, and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. He said, but be very careful in our choices, your goals, your hopes, your dreams, because they can be vanity. Then you go on to chapter 12. What's this say? The next verse. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come or the evil days come and the, and the years draw nigh when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon says, don't get yourself in that shape. Don't get yourself in that shape. That's the one battle that we have. We're passionate about those things. As he said today, I'm all in because I've got a home in heaven. A writer says, we kick ourselves that our cravings for lesser things compete with God. Do your cravings for lesser things compete with God as the satisfaction of our souls? This is a godly grief. We do very well to be convicted and penitent. We know that we have tasted pleasures at the right hand of God and that our desires for them are pitifully small compared to their true worth. I love that line. We know that we have tasted pleasures at the right hand of God. Come and see, taste. The Lord is good. And we know that we've tasted pleasures at God's right hand, but our desire for God and His, what He offers us is pitifully small compared to their true worth. If not so, the building would be overflowing. We'd have lines and, because the desire would be so strong to know God. But we're not that way. No matter how small... Our spiritual taste has been awakened once we have tasted the presence of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 12. What is your why, your passion? Do you have one? I love what Paul had to say, and it's mine. And the older I get, I think of it every day. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 12. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is a resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And that's why we celebrated what we did this morning. Because he is risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. He said Christ is risen. But if Christ is not risen, he says, then we are liars. Because we're preaching to you that Christ is risen. Verse 17, verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. This is where it's sad. Paul says he had to rise. He did rise. Because if he didn't, we're still in our sins. Then he says, verse 18, Then also those who have fallen, fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiful. Pitiable, as it says here. You ever thought about that? If Christ didn't rise, 
all the saints that have gone on before me have perished. It's all, it's all in, there's nothing to it. Paul said, if Christ didn't rise, we're lying. We've been preaching that he's resurrected. And all those who've gone on before and we planted in the ground have perished. Verse number 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. But he says we will be resurrected. And we're going to get a new body. You want to know why I'm all in? I want to be resurrected. You know, we sing the song, In a Land Where We'll Never Grow Old. We sang that about a couple of weeks ago at home. Brother Lynn got up afterwards and he said, you know, that young man that led that song has an interesting perspective about never growing old. He wants to grow old. And all the old people that are here, we don't want to grow old. It's not so great. And I thought about that. That's true. I don't want to just grow old. I want to get a new body. I want to be able to do the things that we used to do. We used to sing a song called, Time Has Made a Change in Me. And in my childhood days, I was young and strong. I could climb the hillside all day long. I'm not the man that I used to be because time has made a change in me. Growing old is not so great. But I want to grow old. But what I want more than that, I know my time's coming. I want a home with Christ because he's resurrected. He died for me. He died for me. Let's keep reading. Verse 42, 43. Talking about our body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. You keep going and the last thing that will be conquered is death. That's the final victory. I won't take time to read it all. You know, it excites me that we're, we sing songs about a reunion. I think about that. I see my brother-in-law having heart surgery. That's not supposed to happen, but it happens. And you know what's a realization? I told my wife, I said, well, our turn's coming. I don't know what it'll be. But I want a resurrected body. I want to see mom and dad. I want to see you. I want to see the saints that have gone on before. I want to see the one who loved me so much that he died for me. And as, what is the, where is the verse? Ephesians 3 says, I believe verse 19, we can't understand that depth, the height, the width. It passes all knowledge. You know, every once in a while, do you ever get a glimpse of the love of Christ and it excites you? Sometimes you kind of get that and you're going, oh, I kind of saw it for a minute. We, um, we see our kids, our own children. You're holding those little children that you have, and you love them. And you kind of get a glimpse, a little taste, and it tastes good. When our kids are struggling, they're not doing well, and you're hurting, you get a little glimpse of how much Christ loves you. Think about it. Your kids fall. They make bad decisions and their life's in turmoil and you're wanting to fix it for them and you can't and it's killing you. I've seen it. You've seen it. Maybe you're experiencing it. We've experienced it. You're, you're hurting. Just remember, he loves you more than that. He understands. We have a high priest who understands. Think about that. Focus on that. Everything we've been through, he understands and he loves you. 
more than we love our children. You get a little taste of that. It tastes awful good. It tastes awful good. And it makes you passionate. I want to serve him. I want to live forever with him. He loves me and I really can't grasp it. But boy, I like it when I get a little taste of it. That's why we do that today. To try to wake us up that it's real. He really did, was resurrected. Let's talk about this hope. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Well, just five verses there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Interesting. I want you to really, if you haven't listened so far, understand something. It gives you a little clue, I think, about hope and how it feels. He says, we glory in tribulations. I don't glory in tribulations, but we need to. I don't like problems. I don't like watching my children have problems. We try to go in sometimes and we try to help and we try to uh, make a path that's a little easier for them because we know that if they go down that path, it's going to hurt. But they need to, like I needed to and like you needed to, but when you're 25 years old, who cares? Right? Let's try this. I've been there. Let's experiment with this. And it's destroying you. But those things happen. What happens when we, per when we go through with this? He said, glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience. If we stay the course, even when we mess up, or even when we're persecuted, you name it, if we stay the course, it builds something in us. It's called perseverance and patience. Our little mistakes build perseverance and patience. What does perseverance build? It builds character or experience. That's the thing that we don't like getting. I can tell you about a oh, hundred stories about experience where we've messed up. And, you know, you've heard the sayings, there's no lesson like, like experience. To all the young people, go get in debt. Just go get in a tremendous amount of debt. It'll all be fine. It'll all be fine. You'll be able to outwork it. You'll be able to produce. You'll be able to outwork the debt, you know. Have what you want now. I remember years ago, there was a farmer who lived up the road. This was in the 90s, late 80s. I just got married. He said, and he was pretty, pretty well to do. But he said, I'll never forget it. He said, my, these young people want to have today what we didn't dream of till we were 40s. I've always remembered that. He was talking about the, these, he goes, these homes. How are they doing this? I don't know what we're doing now, but at the time, there was a lot of new homes going up with married couples in their 20s. He said, how are they doing this? He was the type, he probably didn't run up, I don't even know that he had a credit card. You know, he didn't see things that way. There was wisdom in what he said. But these things, when we do them, they build patience and character. They mold you. 
And what happens when you build character and patience and perseverance and experience? He says, then you get hope. Does that make any sense? And hope does not disappoint. Well, hope does not make ashamed. You ever, just in your relationship with Christ or with your wife, you're walking the walk, things don't go well, you make bad decisions and you persevere and you realize everything's going to be all right. It's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. And you're stronger afterwards than you were before if you persevere. Brother Marlon said one time, he was up preaching not long ago, and he said the hardest ones, I never heard him say this, but he said the hardest people to get, to get back on the path are the people who are believers, who are members of the church and don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Those are the hardest. Interesting. It's interesting. Isn't it? But when we persevere, no matter who we are, and don't quit, and we're walking with you, Lord, he says, we get hope. That's an amazing thought. Now, I've got to have a challenge for you. First of all, hope does not disappoint. You try to reverse these things. Try to get hope in this feeling of not being disappointed, this feeling of not being ashamed, but not persevering, not having patience. Not going through any tribulations. It's difficult. You ever seen the spoiled child who everything works out for them? They have a hard time grasping this. They have a hard time grasping this. As, as well do I. So do I. I can remember when we would work on the farm, things would really blow up, not do well. And as a young man, it would extremely frustrate me. Like, we're just done. This is horrible. All the goals we had are, are, are done. And I was right. But my dad, being a lot older, he was almost, and I've probably shared this with you before, I don't know, but he'd almost acted like he enjoyed it. He would go, oh yeah, let's just buckle down and do this, 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 and this. And I'd say, but what's the, you know, what, this isn't going to work. Oh yeah. And I figured out years later, it was experience. He had trained himself that when problems come, big, small, step through them, he had patience, he had experience, he had character, and he had hope. He knew everything was really going to be all right. Amazing. But you know, you have to go through those things. And hope is amazing. The more hope you have, the more you grasp that, start to understand it, it's a wonderful, I'll say, feeling. Second Thessalonians, Paul said, do not be weary in well-doing. In the book of Habakkuk, I love these verses. Habakkuk chapter, what are we in, three, I believe. Verse number 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Even though you messed up and you, you're, you're, not, you're going to be late on that car payment and your credit's going down. Even though that may have happened. Though the labor of the olive may fail. Maybe you're somebody's sick and it don't look good. And the fields yield no food. Now they, now we're getting pretty desperate now. No fruit on the vines. The olive may fail. No 
and the fields yield no food, and though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, this is desperation time. So you would automatically say, well, there's no hope. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high heels. Woo! You got that kind of faith? You lose your job. Someone's sick. Maybe there's a family member and it don't look good. We're in an economic slowdown. This would be called a catastrophe, a depression. And he says, yet I'm going to have joy in the Lord. See, that's hope. That's somebody who's persevered and sees, gets all the clutter out of his mind and can see the hope of God. I love this verse, Deuteronomy 28, in verse number 47. Tell me where you're at on this. God said, uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse number 47, Because you did not serve the Lord, your God, with joy and gladness of heart. Everybody got that. Because you didn't serve the Lord, your God, with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. God talking to his people. The key to endurance in the cause of self-sacrificing love, the love of Christ, is not heroic willpower, but deep, unshakable confidence that the joy we have tasted in fellowship today will not disappoint us in death. It's interesting. He said, because you did not serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart, you'll serve your enemies. That's an attitude, isn't it? I thought heroic willpower was just doing what we had to do because we're supposed to do it. Eh, who cares about the joy part? I'm here. I took the bread. I sang the song, surround us, Lord. I sang the song, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. I got up and I prayed, thank you for the food. But your heart's not in it. Oh, taste that the Lord is good. Have you ever had your heart really in it? And it tastes good. It's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. We were at a funeral one time at a church. We just had a connection with the family, and they, they asked me to lead the song at a church I'd never been to, a cappella singing, congregational style. And I was a little concerned because I didn't know what songs we could sing. So we made sure... Some of the people from the valley were there. And so we sang the song where no one stands alone. And right on the second row were this group of women who I'd never seen before. And as we sang, and their eyes started closing, and the tears started flowing, and the arms started doing that. Somebody says, are you saying we need to write? I'm just telling you, it kind of felt good. 
They didn't know the song. You could tell. They were, but they loved the message. Oh, it tasted good. Oh, it tasted good. It's amazing when we put our heart into it and make our passion the Lord Jesus, how good it feels and how disappointing it is when we don't. I asked my wife the other day, I said, um, do you, uh, I was thinking about this, and I said, do you, do you enjoy cooking for me? She was in there cooking supper. Didn't let on that I was doing any kind of research on anything, but I just said, do you enjoy cooking for me? She goes, well, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. So she's been doing that for 31 years. Soon be 32. Did that for the kids. Tuesday we'll go feed cattle. Do you think I enjoy, I have great joy for that? Is there something that, that just I'm excited about? So somebody says, she doesn't have a lot of joy in that. How do you know? Think about what you do every day. Think about what you do and there's a task to do. And honestly, if you asked her, right in the middle, she might say, well, not necessarily, but it is joy. It's an amazing thing. When we walk with God, sometimes we think that everything is a high. Like, you know, you, you go to the ball game and you win. Houston goes on to the Super Bowl. You know, that's awesome. You sit around, you play video games, and you get a high because you've done something, you know, and so you crave these little silly little things all the time. And then you've got life. And you're going, there's no joy in cooking dinner. There's no joy in it. Yeah, there is. See, somebody may say sometimes that some of the things we do, how do you have joy in what we do? When June rolls around and May at home, I've told my friends, somebody will say, oh, I'm ready for summer. And I'll say, I, I like winter. Because we start rolling hay, and that's all we do is roll hay. Somebody says, ha, you don't enjoy it. But I do enjoy it. It's a task. It's part of a big picture is what I'm saying. And part of that big picture is fun. It's what we do. Not that I enjoy every minute like winning the game. We're, do, we're spiking the, you know, we're moving hay. And I'm, but you know what's an amazing feeling? My wife has helped me. You know, she, she's rolling hay one day and the phone rings and it's on fire. She was pretty excited. Now, she will tell you, my son is better than me. He is like, he goes and gets in the car or the pickup. He will drive over there and be very calm. I think he's pretty good at that. I'm pretty excited. But you know, everything was all right. Yeah, we lost it. Bad deal. Fire trucks come out, bad deal. But you know, that's adversity. I enjoy adversity. I've learned to enjoy adversity. You know, that's a challenge. And in the big scope of what we're doing, it's part of it. It's kind of like when you lose somebody. That's a challenge. But in the big scope of what you're doing, there's pleasure in moving on. Because this is what we're about. Think about it. Think about how it brings hope. 
I wasn't hopeless. I knew everything was going to be all right. 25 years ago, I'd have been hopeless. <laughs> but it, I hate to say it's not that I enjoyed it, but it, we're all going to be fine. If the cattle die, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine because I know what the big picture is. And even if it doesn't work out on that end, I still know I'm all right. It's an amazing feeling. Now, you know what the worst thing is you can do? And I want to tell you this. Look at it from a worldly perspective, and we're going to bring it spirit. You know what the worst thing is you can do? You know what the worst thing is she can do? If she says, I don't want to cook today, is if she goes in there and lays down and goes to bed and don't cook today. She don't feel like it. You know what the worst thing is I can do when we're broke down and they're giving rain and we're not going to get it done? We're not going to get it done. You know what the worst thing I can do is go, forget it. Let's go home. You know, I've never done that. You know, I have never done that. Ever. I don't know. Maybe when I was 20-something, maybe I did. I don't know. But I don't now. Somebody says, aren't you depressed? Maybe a little. But then you get picked up. You know? Everything's going to be all right. But the worst thing she can do if she's having a bad day is go, you know what, I'm not cooking today. I'm going to bed. You're going to, I would be saying, you don't do that. Everything's going to be fine. And she knows everything will be fine. It's that hope and experience and tribulation. It's that hope. That's why when we bury our mom and dad, it's okay. We have hope. And it's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling. I want to read something to you. Always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. Always God renounces a lesser good for a greater. There's some truth to that. And the opposite is what sin is. See, sin... Is the, we, we get it backwards, don't we? We make sin the greater thing and God the lesser. But he says, God, you always renounce the lesser for the greater. And that's what sin is. The struggle to submit is not a struggle to submit. Now let's take this, because I really stay with me, because this really helped me. Just as small as it is, if my wife's struggling that day to submit to doing what she always does. Is it a struggle to submit? You ever use that word struggle? I'm struggling to get up in the morning and go to work. I'm struggling to get up in the morning to, and do some study. I'm studying to pray like I... I'm struggling and we use that word. It's not a struggle to submit. It's a struggle to accept with passion. I did this at Gunner and nobody would do it. Anybody grit their teeth? You ever grit your teeth? I said that and then Ryan and Tammy don't grit their teeth. They're sitting on the front row. But the young people will grit their teeth. You ever grit your teeth? When things are really tense, sometimes on the farm, I'll find myself gritting my teeth. I'm a little tense. Not because I'm miserable, because we, let, let's go. The struggle to submit is not a struggle to submit, but a struggle to accept it with passion. I mean with joy. Picture me with my ground teeth. You grind your teeth. Stalking joy, fully armed, 
It's a highly dangerous quest. I read that one day and I thought, wow. I don't know whether you got it or not. But when we're struggling with something, we're struggling with joy to accept what God wants us to do, to be happy doing it. And that's exactly what we do when we're doing something. We'll grit our teeth. It's a dangerous quest, and we push on with joy. It's a passion. It's a passion. So the next time you're supposed to get up in the morning and do something, maybe pray, you're in a hurry. Don't say the words, I'm struggling. You're just not doing it with a passion that you ought to be doing it with. And it's a dangerous, it's a hard thing. Grit your teeth like you would anything else and go, Lord, I'm in. I'm in. I may not feel like it perfectly today, but I'm in. I'm in. Grit your teeth and do it with joy and with passion. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling. Somebody sent me this the other day. It really was really good. You may have heard it. I'll close with this. I got one more because I am ahead of myself. Ha, this is, we're not getting too late, are we? John 14, verse number 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. What does that mean? Now, I, I know what it means, and I know you know what somebody says. Well, that means we love him and we keep his commandments. That's right. Have you ever thought that, is it the effect of love and I keep his commandments, or is it just the essence of love? No, we just, we, we just obey. That's what love is, and I get that. But he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love him, and so I'll keep his commandments. Sometimes we try to pull all the feelings completely out, but it's amazing. Once you follow the Lord and you start to taste that he's good, you start to understand what he did, and you start to enjoy it. Your passions start arising, and you're saying, you know, I do love him. I'm going to keep your commandments because of what you've done for me. That's a weather vane. These quotes I'm giving are just from different people that I have found for 30 years of preaching. That any, any teaching about God's demand that we delight in Him more than anything else, it'll break people and humble them. It makes us desperate for true conversion and to be true Christians. What's he talking about? He's talking about enjoying keeping His commandments. Oh, how easy it is to think that we are what we ought to be when our emotions are made peripheral. What does peripheral mean? Peripheral means way out here. Where do, you, where do you bring your, your love for God? Are they way out there and I'll obey? I mean, I like it, but I'll obey. I'll pray for my brother and sister. May not want to, but I'll do it. And it's easy to think we're doing what we ought to do as long as we keep our emotions and what we're really thinking way out there where we can't touch them. Mere thoughts and mere deeds are manageable. By a carnal mind, a carnal religious mind. But our emotions are the weathercock or the weather vane of the heart. Nothing shows the direction 
of our soul like the deep winds of our soul and a demand for Christ's exalting joy in God. Where are you at? You know, I remember the farmers would say, we need to get a rain. And somebody would joke and say, we need an east wind. And you've heard it probably. Why do I want an east wind? Because if you get that east wind, you're going to get a rain. It's funny. That thing right there will move, won't it? Let's you know what's going on. If that wind blows out of the north, we've got a norther. It's out of the southwest, it may be dry. It tells us what's happening. What's the weather vane of your heart tell you? Where are you really at? Where are you really at? Nothing, and I agree with that. Nothing tells you where you're at, like the weather vane of your heart. Where's that? What makes your wind blow? What is it that turns you on, man, to go? Is it the love of Christ, or is that all peripheral? And what excites me is that uh, when I see these things, I understand that there's hope. And I do try to look at things a little differently. I'm going to go at it with passion, not I'm struggling. Because that's not what I do at home. That's not what Teresa does at home. It's not what you guys do at home, more than likely. I'm struggling, so I'm probably not going to do this today. You'll go get counseling if you do that. I want to finish. We'll close with this. Somebody sent this to me a month or two ago, and I listened to it, and I listened to it again. Some of you may have heard it. You may have all heard it, but it's called Good. And it's talking about passion. Let me read this. There is something that one of my direct subordinates, one of the guys who worked for me, a guy who became one of my best friends, pointed out to me. He would pull me aside with some major problem or issue that was going on. And he'd say, boss, we've got this thing, we've got this situation, and it's going terribly wrong. I would look at him and I would say, good. Finally, one day he was telling me about something that was going off the rails, and as soon as he finished explaining it to me, he said, I already know what you're going to say. And I asked, what am I going to say? And he said, you're going to tell me good. He continued, That's what you always say. When something is wrong or something's going bad, you always look at me and you say, good. And I said, well, I do mean it. Because that's how I operate. So I explained to him that when things are going bad, there's going to be some good that comes from it. Everybody understand that. Your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. When things are going bad, there can be some good come from it. Oh, the mission got canceled. Good. We can focus on getting another one. You didn't get the high-speed gear that you wanted. Good. We'll keep it simple. You didn't get promoted. Good. It's more time for you to get better. You didn't get funded. Good. We own more of the company. You didn't get the job you wanted. Good. Go out. Gain more experience. Build a better resume. Good. You got injured. Good. You needed a break from training. You got tapped out. Good. It's better to tap out in training than to tap out on the street. Good. You got beat. Good. You learned. You had unexpected problems. 
Good. We've got to figure out solutions. That's it. When things are going bad, don't get all bummed out. Don't get started. Don't get frustrated. Just look at that issue and say, good. I don't mean to say something trite. I'm not trying to sound like a positive guy. That guy ignores the hard truth. That guy thinks a positive attitude will solve all of his problems. It won't, but neither will dwelling on the problem. Accept the reality. Focus on the solution. Take that issue. Take that setback. Take that problem. Turn it into something good. Go forward. And if you're a part of a team, that attitude will spread throughout the team or the congregation. Finally, if you can say the word good, then guess what? It means you're still alive. It means you're still breathing. And if, it mean, and if you're still breathing, that means you've got some fight left in you. Get up, dust off, reload, recalibrate, re-engage, and go get on the attack. Somebody sent me that, and I listened to it more than once. In your Christian life, if things aren't going well, you know, that's, that can be good. Not just like a positive guy who says, good, everything's going to be fine. But when we reload, recalibrate, and come to Jesus, it's good. We got to have people who have been through problems and can help somebody else. That's good. You got to go through tribulations and trials and build your patience, your character, your experience, and at last your hope. We got to have those people in the church, not quitters. As Marlon said, the hardest ones sometimes are the people who know what to do and won't do them. It's not good to them, but it can be good.